0: So let's look together at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the second part of that chapter, uh, beginning at verse 35. You'll you'll find it on page 1,156. Let's just ask for God's help uh, as we come uh, again to look at his word. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, when you first created this world and you created human beings, it was when you breathed on us that we were given life. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would breathe on us again just now, that he would speak your word to us, and again that that word would bring new life in each one of us. Amen. We've been thinking, as I just said, about this Easter season about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's nothing uh, new about that but studying in first Corinthians has given us a chance to to see aspects of the resurrection of Jesus that we don't always get a chance to dwell on. So a couple of weeks ago on Easter Sunday we thought about a quite remarkable truth and that is that Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He is the first of a group of people who will rise from the dead Those who trust in him will follow him and will rise too. It's a quite staggering claim that the Bible makes. What Paul said so far about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 still leaves a skeptic with a lot of questions. How how could this really work? How are the dead raised? What kind of body uh, will, with what kind of body will they come? That's the question Paul addresses uh, at the start of our passage in verse 35 Paul doesn't think that that question's quite as clever as it first sounds how foolish he says in verse 36 and he points to nature and he says that nature has a a a scenario a a dynamic where life coming from death is quite commonplace he says, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. So anyone who's been at work in their garden uh, so far this spring uh, might might have a, a, a recent memory of what Paul's talking about here. We don't plant the whole of a plant in the ground. We, we plant only a small seed. And if you've held seeds in your hand recently, you'll know how, how small and dead apparently lifeless, they appear. So, it's, it's this thing, it's this small seed that we plant, but it's this small dead-looking thing that bursts with new life sometime later. So, there's a remarkable transformation that we see in nature where God gives the seed a new and a living body. That, says Paul, it's something like what God does with us when He gives us resurrection bodies. He takes our dead bodies, He He uses them as a seed, and a new resurrection life bursts from it. It's a, a wonderful image. Possibly hard to to really take to heart, to really believe. But just in case we think Paul's naive that he's um, living in cloud cuckoo land when he he thinks about our our bodies and our death and and life beyond death, Uh, he strikes me in this passage actually as quite realistic. Look at verses 42 to 44. He says in verses 42 to 43 that our bodies are perishable, dishonorable, and weak. Over the Easter weekend, I celebrated my 40th birthday and I wouldn't feel so bad uh, telling you that if, if I didn't know that there were quite a few other people around about the same age in the congregation too. Um, but I'm beginning to understand, I think, what Paul means. I'm aging. Fast. I'm losing hair faster than Liverpool lose premiership games. My muscles are turning from rock kicks to sponge creams almost before my eyes my face has more lines on it than a google map you'd get lost i'm aging and that's natural this this body that i live in is is slowing down already and this kind of thing terrifies us in our contemporary culture we don't really like to talk about it actually Instead, we like to spend vast amounts of our our time and our energy and even our money on trying to delay or or disguise what, what is happening in our bodies. Christian people needn't think this way. We can relax and stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Because if we're in Christ, we can stand tall in the face of aging. One day, you see, I'm going to trade in this body with its, its sell-by date, and I'll be given a new body that has no best before. No matter how much this body shrivels and shrinks and decays, in God's hands it remains a seed. It'll fall to the ground from which my resurrection body will rise. In verses 45 to 49, Paul relates our bodies to the resurrection body of Jesus. He says in verse 44 that our dying body is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. I want to think with you for a second about what he means by a spiritual body. I don't think he means something immaterial uh, that will be ghosts. No, he's making the point that those who are raised with Jesus will have a supernatural body like the one he received at his resurrection. Uh, And to make that point clear, he talks for the second time in chapter 15 about Adam and Jesus in the same breath. He says, just as we're like our ancestor Adam with a natural earthly body, so one day those who belong to Jesus will be like him and will have a spiritual body just like his. And we're not told exactly what that spiritual body would be like, but, but do you remember those gospel accounts of the resurrected Jesus? He did things very much like what he had done before. His body had a, a real physical nature to it. The gospel writers make that point over and over again because they tell us about a whole number of things that Jesus did that you need a physical body to do. He walked along the road. He talked with his friends. He ate with his disciples. He cooked breakfast with them. That's the resurrected Jesus in his resurrection body we're talking about. I don't want you to miss this morning the, the importance of the Bible's teaching on the physical nature of the resurrection. Because it seems to me that most of us who believe in Jesus, we, we tend to have an underdeveloped sense of what life with God is going to be like. We think that when we come into eternity, whatever way God's going to do that for us, we think it's going to be some kind of bland, spiritual immaterial existence Uh, our image is probably shaped more by the old philadelphia adverts of angels sitting on clouds playing harps than than the bible than what the bible actually teaches us it's not going to be ethereal spiritual and immaterial we're going to have new physical bodies And we're going to be part of a beautiful new creation, fully restored. And rather than being some kind of vague shadow existence, it's going to be the richest life imaginable. Jesus said when he had come among us, I have come that you might have life to the full. Folks, if that's true, then then we ought to be future-oriented people. We ought to be excited about our futures. In his commentary on this passage, Vaughn Roberts says this, One mark of godly Christians as they get older is that they do not live for the past like so many elderly people, but are looking forward to the future. The Christian can always say the best is yet to come. Folks, that's entirely countercultural. For us to look into our futures, even our aging futures, and to say the best is yet to come. But that's the hope of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. All this talk about resurrection, inspiring as it is, can, can seem pretty remote especially while we continue to live life on this earth because death is all around us. During Holy Week, I buried two of our older members. In the following week, the Reverend Dr. Jim buried two more of our members. Death's a terrible enemy. Death is the final statistic And in the present life, he seems to have the upper hand. As every day passes, we move closer to our grave, and it's as if we can hear him whispering at our shoulder, I'll get you in the end. Don't you forget about it. He he taunts us with every gray hair, with every new wrinkle. Uh, No amount of just for men or or Botox is going to help us. As the year passed by, he seems to say, it won't be long now, any day, and you'll be mine. And when we see the coffin of our loved one lowered into the grave or an incinerator, death's grip can can seem so firm and so final. There's nothing firm or final about it. If you're in Jesus Christ, you need not be bullied by death. Thinking of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul looks death in the eye and he demands, Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? David Watson, the late evangelist, the Anglican evangelist, sometimes illustrated the power of Jesus' death with a story he told of a day when he came home and heard the voice of his young daughter screaming in in the back garden he he went and he found that she was being chased by a bee so he caught her he wrapped his arms around her to comfort her and to protect her And, and a moment later she felt her her father's body tense up as he held her and he said you don't need to worry anymore darling that bee has stung me and bees don't sting twice. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he wrapped himself around us. The sting that was coming to us, the the punishment we deserved, he took it. And we'll still die one day, but the sting of death has been dealt with. It's been drawn already by Jesus Christ. Because of him, we don't fear death. It's defeated. The modern hymn writers, Getty and Townend, they're spot on when they say in the power of the cross, death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. No wonder Paul celebrates the way he does. Thanks be to God, he says. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, when we get to the end of chapter 15 of First Corinthians, we've pretty much reached the end of, of Paul's teaching and his argument in this long letter. I don't want to labor the content of chapter 16, but I don't want to to leave it entirely unnoticed. There there are a couple of main sections there. In verses 1 to 4, Paul tells the believers in Corinth about a collection that he's planning to make when he calls with them. And in verses 5 to 24, he makes a series of personal uh, requests and greetings. Very quickly about the collection. Paul seems to be replying to a question that they had asked him in their letter. And it seems that they were looking for instructions about how they should gather the money and what they were to do with it. So Paul deals particularly with those questions, how they're to collect the funds and how the funds are to go to Jerusalem. I want you to notice just two things very quickly. firstly, Paul's ministry wasn't one just of words. Paul is really is well known as a great missionary, the man who took the, the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. But here we see him as a relief worker. Social action may not be a well-known aspect of Paul's ministry, but, but this should not surprise us. Because evangelism and social concern have always been intimately related for God's people. Christian people who who understand the heart of God, who are becoming more like Jesus. They engage in both of these activities unselfconsciously. We're gospel people, good news people in our words and in our actions, and the two at the same time. Secondly, about the Corinthian giving, I think the the key thing that we learn about giving in this passage is that it was to be intentional. Paul says do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul's expecting the Corinthians to be intentional about how they give for God's work in the world. They're to plan to give an appropriate uh, proportion of their money If we're in Christ, we ought to be asking ourselves how we uh, are doing this. If you're a communicant member of, of this church or of a church like it, you'll probably have made a vow or a promise, something along these lines. Our vow reads like this, we promise to give a fitting proportion of our time, talents, and money for the church's work in the world. Maybe this morning's um, passage can just act as a quick reminder to us about our giving. Have we considered what that fitting proportion is? Do we need to review that? Are we using our envelopes or a standing order or whatever other method to ensure that we're giving to God's work in the world? In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul runs with this theme at, at a great length, but he says, among other things, see that you excel in this grace of giving. Even quicker still, let's have a look at the remainder of chapter 16. A lot of the commentaries skim over passages like this one. Uh, one of the commentaries that I've been using for this series actually just stopped at the end of chapter 15, didn't have anything on chapter 16 but I think that's a huge mistake. Look at the main dynamic at the heart of it. What does chapter 16 tell us? I think it tells us that Paul is a relational leader of a relational church. In verse 7, he says, I don't want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits Now bear in mind all the difficult things Paul's had to say in this letter. Lots of difficult things, but he wants to be with them. Paul loves these guys and wants to be with them. He wants them to love one another too. Look at verse 20 there. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I think that's the part of the Bible that teenagers always enjoy uh, thinking about and uh, beginning to practice this isn't a one-off. Five times in the New Testament we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not sure exactly what that meant in the culture, what the role of a holy kiss was. But I'll tell you one thing, it's got to be more than some of the the stuffy formality that we have tolerated as the tone of our church life in many places. It's got to be more than that. My daughter, Ruby, our youngest four-year-old, has a great gift of letting me know that she's glad to see me. Whenever I open the door and come in at tea time, Ruby would, ever since she could walk, she'd greet me. She'd come bouncing up and down with a smile from ear to ear, just shouting, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I think that's what Paul has in mind. That, that It's great to see you enthusiasm, whether it comes with a, just a a smile or a a hug or some sort of kiss, it's great to see you, this kind of love for one another. And look finally at verse 24. How does Paul finish this letter, this great 1 Corinthians? My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Some people will try to make 1 Corinthians into a manual for mission. Others will try to make it into a theological textbook. It's a letter from a pastor to the people he loves. Paul was a relational leader of a relational church. And he had to be that because he was following in the way of Jesus. Jesus. We love one another as he first loved us. We're out of time for this morning and we've reached the end of this series in First Corinthians. I thought the best way to finish for one more minute is to ask the why question. Why did Paul write this letter? Why did he choose to raise all those difficult issues that we have been studying these last months, why did he choose to confront them about their sexual immorality? Why did he con- choose to confront them about their idolatry? Why did he work so hard at setting them straight about their worship and their understanding of what true spiritual maturity is? Why would he do that? Because we all know what happens when you confront people about their failings you risk losing that friendship altogether. Why was Paul willing to jeopardize the relationships that he had in the city of Corinth? It's because of what he believed about the church. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. Paul wanted them to understand their importance in God's plan to save the world. Their humble little gathering in that huge, hustling, bustling city of Corinth was so strategic in God's plan to change the world. The church was God's alternative to the the immorality and to the false religion in Corinth. If people in Corinth were going to find the living God, it was going to be among them. The church in Corinth mattered. It mattered so much. It mattered more than any other institution in the world. That's why Paul went to these lengths. That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians. Bill Hybels, the founding pastor of Willow Creek, once famously said that the local church is the hope of the world. I think he's right, but I'm not sure we live as if it's true. I'm not sure that we've understood the significance of this gathering and the, the various offshoots and the various ways this community gathers during the week. I'm not sure we've understood that. This is God's vehicle for being present in the world and for drawing people to his Son. The local church is the hope for the world. We're the hope of Ballyhackamore. The Christian churches here are. And for East Belfast and for Ireland. We're the hope of the world. Let's pray.